Welcome to Our Social Impact, brought to you by the Prison Scholar Fund. The PSF's mission is to provide education and employment assistance to help currently and formerly incarcerated people succeed and thrive in society, while avoiding homelessness and the revolving door of re incarceration. The PSF also advocates for reform and correctional education to increase opportunity for all. As a nonprofit, we rely on investments, volunteers, and are always looking for board members to champion our mission. Please connect with us through our website at prisonscholars.org, where you can find volunteer opportunities, make a contribution, and learn more about becoming a board member. You can also email us at info at prisonscholars.org and find us through most social media platforms at Prison Scholars. Become a patron by supporting us directly at Patreon with at Prison Scholars. We appreciate your review of this podcast through whatever platform you listen through. Without further ado, here's Dirk Van Velsen, founder and CEO of the Prison Scholar Fund. So today on Our Social Impact, we have Nicholas Bradford with the National Center for Restorative Justice. Welcome, Nicholas. Thanks. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. So tell me about the National Center for Restorative Justice. What do you guys do there? Uh, the National Center for Restorative Justice is an organization that is really focused on advancing restorative justice in a couple of different sectors. Most of our work is in education, um, but we feel like that there's three pieces that are kind of critical to moving this work forward. Schools, obviously, like how we en- engage in discipline at schools, the justice system itself, um, whether that's juvenile justice, kind of our focus is juvenile justice, but um, there's just justice systems in general, and then also families. So and I, I believe that when we have these three th- these three groups speaking the same language when it comes to how we understand discipline, how we think about engaging in conflict healthy in healthy ways, that's when we'll have a, a kind of a more compassionate uh, community. And that's really what I'm, I'm looking for. I always say this, like I'm a pretty selfish person. I think that uh, my, one of my biggest goals in, in the world is, is I wanna live in a compassionate community. And so, those three things, those three kind of groups um, can be a place to, to start that work. Okay. Now, what is restorative justice for the people who have no idea what you're yeah, talking about? Yeah, there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of different ways to think about it. Um, but really, our definition uh, is this, it's a relational approach to conflict. How are we in relationship at the same time we're engaging in conflict? And I think that um, while restorative justice has a lot of, that we do a lot of really important work that's kind of pre-conflict, um, a lot of the relationship building that we do in schools, a lot of family relationship building, all the, that's incredibly important. Um, but really where restorative justice does its best work is when there is harm, when there is conflict, when there is kind of um, an impact that's a negative, negative impact. So. Um, it's this relational approach to conflict and then also kind of trying to answer these two questions. How do we create space for accountability and at the same time build relationships? And I think that in schools and in communities we, we and in families we do the same thing. We, like, it's really easy to build relationships when kids are sitting at the dinner table and uh, lining up for class and you know raising their hands. It's really easy to build a relationship with, with kids when they're, when they're doing those things. Um, but it's really, really hard when you know you're daughter or your son is like on the ground like having a temper tantrum and or your kids in your classroom are uh throwing paper or stuff like that or kids in the community are you know kind of loitering smoking kind of uh beating people up and that kind of thing so it's really hard to build relationship when those things are happening so that's what restorative justice is really doing its best work is when we're engaging in relationship building around kind of actions of harm so it's kind of funny it's like some of my recent trainings, uh, I did one in New York City, and their whole thing was to lean into conflict. Mm-hmm. And that, 
it even takes my mind to Google, I know that they're very conflict driven. They, they actually thrive on conflict to get through it. So how do you, how do you instill a conflict driven culture in a positive way for the people that don't want to deal with it at all? Because yeah. it seems like they just shut down, <laughs> don't want to talk about it. Yeah, there's a really amazing uh, kind of uh, organization in, at the University of Seattle, uh, University of Washington called the Gottman Institute. Um, the Gottman? The Gottman Institute, okay. G-O-T-T-O-M-N. Um, and they do, primarily their work is around couples, intimate partner relationships and things like that, marriages. And, and their um, research is like just... 20 years of, of doing this work and, and couples who stay together are those couples who are able to engage in conflict, who are able to have the sort of the lean in and they actually have this like little uh, tabletop thing where these couples sit and they uh, measure the, the movement that they have. And if you physically lean in to the conflict when your wife brings up something that's hard or your husband brings up something that's hard, like if you move toward the conflict, that's those, they can predict that that relationship will be more successful than relationships where you're disengaging from oh, conflict. It's really fascinating. So I bring that up because the, a, lot, a lot of the work that we do is with teachers. Um, and so I try to make the work that we talk about like really uh, connected to like how we are in general, not just how we are with young people who are my students, right? Um, and so having those conversations around our kids and around our spouses and around our colleagues um, and then also around the, the young people, the students in our classrooms is, is critical. So the couple of things that we start with is, is really this idea that conflict is um, a personal experience, that I experience in conflict, and we often think about it as a disagreement between two people, um, which isn't actually the case because I can have a lot of conflict inside myself and not express it. And so if I don't express it, it doesn't mean that it's not there. It just means that I've internalized it. And so, you know, as adults, we give ourselves ulcers. We give ourselves like uh, cardiac disease and stuff like that by not talking about the conflict. Um, and in the same thing in schools, like we, we really try to avoid a conflict until it really gets out of hand. And then we kind of come in with a hammer. You're kind of surprised. It it's, yeah. like, it's funny that it, when you talk about the lean in and the lean out part, you can kind of picture by leaning out of that conflict, you shut it down, you go do something else. You know, if, it's, if you're a married couple, mm -hmm. the guy goes to the garage, works on the car, the woman goes, <laughs> whatever she's doing. Yeah, yeah. And then the issue is not resolved. Right, right, right. And I think that that's what we see in school so much is that we're not developing strong conflict skills for anybody, for teachers or for young people. Uh, and one thing that I, I keep coming back to is it's like, you know, the folks who are in positions of power, teachers, police, community members, parents, like we weren't ever taught these conflict skills as young people. And so it's no, you know, it makes a lot of sense that we don't have these skills. Does, uh, like a lot of this work for me comes from my family and like where I grew up and sort of the, the conflict role modeling that I saw. And I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, upon reflection, that probably wasn't the best sort of strategies and things like that. Cause my dad was definitely an avoider and an, like he would over uh, overpower conflict, but his voice and his sort of demeanor and, um, and that kind of stuff is like, oh yeah, that's, that's how I was. Um, and, and so you have to really like back up, slow down with teachers, with uh, police and say like, how are we in our relationship? Are we comfortable talking about things that are more difficult? Um, and so that's kind of the conversation that needs to happen, yeah. So now that you kind of understand how to deal with this, what do you guys do at your center? So a lot of the work that we do is, is training teachers. Um, so we're sort of justice, especially in this community and kind of the greater King County area in Washington. A lot of the restorative justice work has focused on young people and healing circles and kind of healing young people. And I think that's incredibly important. But the, 
the people with power and the people who are in positions of control or whatever you want to call it um, are the adults. And so we need to do a lot of work to change how adults engage with young people and how adults engage with other adults, in, in fact. Um, and so we have a, a couple courses uh, that we offer for folks around the region, but we also have a lot of contracts with schools and school districts in the area. So Kent, we've got a few schools in Kent. We've got a big contract and do a bunch of work with Tacoma. We've got some work out in the, on the east side of the state, um, but we're trying to we're trying to grow. That that's really our, our mission. We didn't we didn't start the National Center for Restorative Justice for Washington. We started this for the rest of the country. And so, some things that are also happening. We you know we do a lot of speaking, a lot of um, articles, and we share a lot of the um, experience of restorative practitioners from around the, the country. Um, so doing interviews with folks and sharing their experiences, um, and then you know in a year and a half, I think we'll have a book out. We've got a We've got a book that's in process and uh, and that's getting written, so I'm excited for that. Yeah. So you just, do you develop the curriculum, or do you go in with the teachings and, and teach the trainers, kind of thing? Um, generally, we we work with teachers. We feel um, that the best work is is done by teacher leader teams. Um, we can come in and kind of do some ground level work, but ultimately, like teachers and, and administrators need to be in partnership on this and kind of move this work forward. So we act as support coaches. Um, kind of trainers initially and then then the teachers and administration will start to take what take the work and run with it um that's what we've seen like the research out of australia that did this work for many many years before america was kind of engaged in this at all um kind of leans on this idea of a teacher leader team um, because admin turns over and kids kind of go through the process and, and kind of leave the schools. So who stays there are teachers and teachers need to have a strong buy-in for this work. Um, and I would say the same thing for police actually, so. So what's your impact and how do you measure it? Or is it kind of a long run thing? Yeah, I mean, uh, our organization is pretty pretty new. Um, and so yeah, so we have some ways that we're measuring and we're kind of trying to work with the, the school districts that we're working with now currently to, to do more evaluation, more assessment. But traditionally, how restorative justice has been measured is a reduction in recidivism. Um, and I think that that is important, right? That, that's an important thing. Um, how many kids are getting suspended repeatedly? How many suspensions there are in discipline in general overall for a school? Those are important. And we see this reductions in those already in the schools that we work with. Um, but there's like bigger kind of societal impacts that we would like to see. And some of the research kind of bears us out in other areas really are around kind of feelings of accountability, feelings of closure, and feelings of relationship repair. And I looked this up before we sat down um, because it's from some research out of Canada that did, did this work that um, restorative justice, when done well, can have an increased impact on those three things, accountability, relationship repair, and closure. And I think our tr traditional justice systems don't do a very good job about kind of doing that. Um, it's interesting, like accountability, we often use this accountability, like the system's gonna hold this person accountable, but in fact, like accountability means that I'm taking responsibility for my actions. And so by definition, like I can't force somebody to take responsibility for their actions. Um, and sometimes it takes people time to take responsibility. Um, and sometimes it can be a really quick process, but it's it's hard and it's something that we need to make space for not to and not just mandate you will take responsibility because we've been there every adult has a kid has been there where they're like johnny don't do that you know this bad and johnny says yeah okay yeah, so and like, that doesn't feel good for yeah. anybody in that conversation yeah so how far upstream do you go as far as grade, le grade level 
Um, yeah, we're actually like doing some work uh, in elementary schools for sure. Um, a lot of the, we have a, a youth program that's taking high school mentors uh, and pairing them with elementary aged fourth and fifth graders to do some of that uh, kind of culture building um, connection, like just young people at, at an early age connecting their actions to impact, understanding their own feelings, kind of social emotional curriculum piece. Um, but actions and impact are key drivers for how young people perceive the world. So oftentimes young young folks will, in elementary school, have a hard time like really understanding why we have rules um, because we haven't done a good job about saying like, the reason why we, we walk inside is because we could hurt, we, you know, we could run into somebody else or we could hit something, especially for, you know, elementary school kids who don't have a whole lot of like physical control over their bodies. Um, <laughs> And so, like, just slowing that process down for them could be really, really helpful. And and really, like, we do this reflection sometimes, which is, like, we think about a time when you help somebody. Think about a time when you hurt somebody at recess, right? In the last, like, 15 or 20 minutes at recess, just do that reflection. And you can see young people start to think about, oh, like, I care about this person. That's important. I hurt them. That's not okay. I care about this person. I helped them. That was great. I want to do more of B and less of A. Um, so yeah, so, and our work primarily is kind of like in the middle school, high school space, but also like I have some colleagues who do amazing work in pre-K and do like one of the things, one of the things that I love about, um, like this work is it's pretty, it's, it's kind of transferable to any setting nearly. Um, and so in pre-K, when we think about one thing that's important in restorative justice are actions of apology, right? Young people in pre-K through elementary school are really good at saying they're sorry. They're less good about saying, like, this is how I'm going to make it up, right? So to a colleague of mine, Tina, she works in the Seattle uh, preschool program. She says, like, her kids just do two things. They all know this is what happens. There are kind of three things, but there's really, really two. Um, one is if you hurt somebody at recess or at, when you're playing, you get an ice pack or a Band-Aid. That's your job. The second piece is you sit with them until they are ready to go play again. Like, and this is sort of this, like, it's not in relation to the the harm. It's not sort of some checkbox, like, okay, this is five minutes, ten minutes, or whatever. It's like, how long does this person feel like it impacted them? That's how long we stay and we sit. Yeah, that's like the lean in. They're, they're recognizing oh, totally. they did totally. something. Yeah. They're taking account, you know, they're accountable for it. Yep. That's great. It's funny, that's a really great spot to, to uh, start because I remember hearing some statistic that like the state of Washington decides how many prisons to build by the fourth grade dropout rate. So instead of addressing the fourth grade dropout rate, we just... Not the fourth plan. grade dropout rate, the fourth grade reading level. Oh, is that what it yeah, is? Yeah, most, most states do that. Third or fourth grade reading levels is an indicator of, of the number of prisons and things like that that, that are... Um, that should be built in the you know next 20 years um, yeah and that's super it's super problematic I know that in the Washington we're doing a, a lot of really important work in the pre-k space to catch kids up so that we can get on grade level for third grade but this is the deal is like that that young people who don't experience success in school struggle and then they get farther and farther behind our exclusionary isolating discipline policies are the driver for that right so and it's, it's not just class or it's not just school exclusion and suspensions, but it's also classroom exclusion. Those kids who struggle with behavior, struggle with meeting the expectations of, of the adults, adults like struggle to building, building relationships. Those kids are the ones that are getting removed from classrooms. And 
thus like losing out on educational opportunities and falling farther behind. So they get back into class and, and this starts like it's really small things um, from kindergarten through fifth grade where young people both are experiencing kind of a slower uh, uptake on their education because of the removal from the classroom. Go talk to the principal, you're not doing the right thing. Um, you know, you have to uh, stay out because you've got into a, a pushing match with some other some other kid at recess. So you're like, you're somewhere else in school suspension or something like that. And you're like, what is going on? Like, why is this kid not in his educational space? And that's, and that's super problematic. So that those small things in elementary school add up to medium-sized things in middle school. And then also young people are kind of narrating to themselves, this is who I am. And I'm the bad kid, I'm the class clown, I'm the one who doesn't read well. And so this is where my target is, right? You're talking to freshmen in high school who's like, yeah, I'm gonna, it's just a matter of time until I drop out. It's just a matter of time until I get, you know, in trouble with the law. And you're like, that's, that's problematic stuff that happened, that started a long, long, long time ago. Um, so we've got to do a lot of work to unmake that stuff. And I think that there's, one of the things that I always say is like restorative justice and there's opportunity in the conflict. Not only do we need to lean in, especially for young people who are struggling to like engage in school, there's opportunity there to build stronger relationships, to build skill sets that will allow them to be successful in schools. Um, and, and it takes time, it takes energy, but certainly the opposite of that doesn't serve them at all. Suspensions, exclusion, isolation, like any of those things. And this is interesting. I'll make this connection because I know that you, like this is the um, Prison Scholar Fund. That you see this kind of trajectory th through adult prison, right? So isolation, exclusion, this this idea, right? So in, in early school, um, exclusion from the the learning environment, the classroom, right? And then something bad happens, you're, you're out, you're out. Uh, recess, you stay inside, other kids are playing, right? This exclusion from community, right? And you're separated. Yeah. yeah, and then in middle school and in high school, you see more uh, suspensions, you see more in-school suspension, you see sort of like this, these bigger sort yeah, of five, the, ten day things. The right? alternative, alternative schools, all those things. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's a great example. If alternative schools, like, oh, you can't function in this environment, so we're going to send you to another special place where you're going to get like... Yeah, the trouble kids school. The trouble kids yeah. school, right? And then and then the justice system, you have... Yeah, it's just one you, step away. Yeah. It's jail, any, and then you go, you know, to farther where you have prisons and you're isolated in the mountains of, uh, you know, <laughs> of the Cascade Mountains and Monroe or kind of way outside of Spokane. Um, and and then you go into segregation, right? Like when, when folks are in prison and then they're further isolated. And and I think this is right, and you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, but, but um, segregation, isolation uh, has been deemed to be a um, inhumane treatment. Is that not yeah, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, and so... And we see it sort of all these negative outcomes from segregation, right? From isolation, like even like, you know, I've, I've seen documentaries where folks are talking about this work there. They're like, yeah, like I'm a strong, like emotionally, like stable person, even in prison. And then I go to SEG and like, I, I'm, I kind of lose touch with reality. Yeah, and, it's a rough place to be, definitely. Yeah, it's an incredibly hard place to be. And so like what, what I think this signals is that we are better and stronger and happier and healthier when we are in community. So if that's the if that's the belief, if that's the truth, then the farther we remove people from community, the worse they are. And so we want people to like make amends for the harm that they've caused or whatever, or like they've done something that's been harmful. Yeah, I get that, but further causing harm does not make sense to me. It never takes my mind to you know restorative justice for prisoners. 
do you guys have any exposure in that field? I don't personally, not in our organization, but it's really interesting. Like I'm having, I'm in a conversation right now with a, a man who's, who's yeah, over yeah. in Spokane. And what does that look like for the people that don't know? Um, so yeah, so I'll say that in um, Oregon's done some good work, and Oprah has some like really good uh, like videos from maybe like eight, ten years ago um, that that highlight that, and also. Um, uh, that CNN reporter, I forget his name, who just did some reports on... Uh, Anderson Cooper? No. Um, Wolf Blitzer. <laughs> gosh, okay, it'll come to me, it'll come yeah. to me. Um, they've done some really interesting work in prisons recently. Um, so if you look up CNN, we're sort of justice, you'll find it. Uh, <laughs> I'll remember it the other time we're done with this, though. But so really, like, the, the restorative justice for victims and um, authors of serious violent crime can be really, really powerful colleague of mine did some really really great work in Oregon so it, you if you're a victim of a uh, violent crime and the person's in prison you can activate the system and that per, the person who's in, in jail has about a six month sort of training in order for them to be ready to sit in that space oh I was wondering how that happened it was yeah. like poof you're in a room <laughs> I can see there yeah, uh, some fireworks yeah, it's really like it can be really I don't know, for lack of a better word, dangerous or... Does the victim have to get trained too? Because I'm sure they come with a lot of emotions. Yeah, they come with a lot of emotions. So there's a lot of what we would call pre-conferencing. Um, and this is what, you know, this is classic victim offender conferencing, um, VOM, and, uh, or victim offender mediation. But this is really around kind of bringing the author and the victim together in a space where they can have a conversation. If folks are incarcerated, there isn't a lot of action of apology or sort of like next steps to move forward. This is really about healing and accountability and relationship repair. Um, in other cases where there's kind of more, there's less justice system involved, you can kind of get more actions of apology, community service, um, uh, like um, financial, you know, kind of compensation, um, and I would say community services that are connected to the interests and needs of the victim. So I'll, I'll finish up with this, though. Is, is So they, the authors, the perpetrators, or are, are, are folks who are incarcerated kind of go through this system. They get some training. It's all around, like, emotional intelligence and sort of being able to take responsibility for reactions. And then you have the victim kind of go through kind of a shorter version of that because they're they're they don't have to take any accountability, right? They're, they're not the ones that did anything wrong. Um, and then you get them together. Um, oftentimes there's support people for both uh, parties, the support people for the um, for the perpetrator or author, and then support people certainly for the victim who can sit in those spaces and like really kind of hold uh, um, hold space. And it really is around sort of sharing the experiences of what happened, um, what brought you here, what happened, and then what was the sort of thinking at the time, what was the impact, um, kind of then if it was like two years ago or five years ago or 15 years ago versus now where I'm at with it. Um, and so who's the real target yeah. here? Is it the, the person in prison who committed the crime or is it, you know, to make them feel more accountable for what they did no, or is it maybe the, the yeah, person's society? Yeah, it's both. I think um, there's three parties always involved in any, any sort of system, the victim, the author and the community. Um, and, and really what we're trying to do is, is kind of create space for, um, for repair, skill building, behavior change, all this stuff that's really important. So or, or for the community to welcome them back in, they have yeah, to be yeah, okay yeah, with it. Yeah, yeah for um, sure. And so 
you know, most folks, 90% or so folks, or, uh, 95% of folks are going to come out of prison at some point in the future. And so making sure that they're in a place where they can kind of come out of prison and be integrated back into society in productive ways. The person who's been impacted, whether it was a family member or the person themselves, who the victim of a uh, serious assault or something like that, like how do they see the world? How do they kind of come back into the world? Even property crime, like if your home's been burglarized when you're not there, like that's a that's a really intimate harm. And like, how do we make space for that to like really kind of uh, for that person to to feel whole and feel safe in their community? And then the community and sort of like what's going on for them, like you know. I, I, I've been the victim of property crime, but like my neighbors know, right? Like the three neighbors around me, I've talked to them, they've had interviews with police. And so like, what's up, like how do they experience their community? Um, so those are the three kind of parties that are always involved. Um, and I don't think there's a lot of like discussion around like, you know, this is a victim-centered approach or this is an author-centered approach or a community-centered approach. I don't necessarily think that there's any sort of um, like weight on one versus the other. It's just all like, you know, trying to create some equal space. Who came up with this whole restorative justice approach? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, um, there's traditional systems that have been using this approach, which is a community-centered kind of um, inclusion uh, approach to conflict for, you know, since time immemorial, right? Um, tribes in Africa and tribes, uh, Aboriginal communities in Polynesia and South Pacific Islands are the ones that I know about. Um, obviously in North America as well, there's some traditional um, Native American or uh, First Nations communities that have been using similar systems. But- So maybe not England, they took everyone <laughs> to Australia. <laughs> yeah, so it's actually like interesting. Yeah, like, yeah, uh, where did that, where did that uh, disentanglement happen? The Wh government got involved in, in New Zealand and Australia and sorry, New Zealand and South Africa in the 80s. Um, and those are both sort of post-colonial um, Commonwealth countries. So you see, and that's why it kind of spread through England and sort of the Commonwealth area. Canada as well was an early adopter. Um, and so these, these two country, countries, um, Family group conferencing comes from New Zealand, and then this sort of much bigger, kind of more systemic um, approach to restorative, to restorative justice came out of South Africa, is in particular in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And this is, it's like maybe I should say like like in the in the history of the human race, like sounds like when you have a small tribe or small community, it's easier to have that restorative justice mm -hmm, approach where mm -hmm. everyone gets together and talks about it. So when did it start splintering? Like when society got so big that you couldn't have these groups yeah i don't oof, i don't know when we lost the tradition yeah, yeah i don't i don't i mean i'm sure at some um, point we just like let's stick them in a prison to send them to australia <laughs> yeah let's just be done let's with send them. them to australia that's right um funny that and then new zealand becomes this like hotbed of restorative justice yeah um i don't know it's a really interesting um thing it's it, it's one of the things that a colleague of mine used to talk about it's like we we started to do this thing where we're outsourcing our justice where in families, like young people, and this is sort of a culture thing that we do, right? Young people often seek mom or dad to, hey, my brother's picking on me, like fix this, right? And in schools, it's, hey, teacher, somebody's doing something, fix this. Uh, and in the community, it's, hey, police, hey, judge, somebody's doing something wrong, fix this. And so we've we've come to this place where we've outsourced all of our conflict. Yeah, they're not leaning into the conflict anymore. Right. You want nothing to do with right. it. Right. We want somebody else to fix it. And and we actually, when we outsource it, when we give it to somebody else, it's very very, very unsatisfying. And this is, goes back to this er earlier point of our accountability, closure, relationship repair, relationship repair. 
are key drivers for like feelings of like happiness around the justice system or feelings that the justice system is responding to our needs. And so, yeah, like we, in our outsourcing, we've lost a lot of the value that our justice system has. And it's really interesting that we don't feel like it's responsive. Fascinating. So how did you get into this work? What, what's your, uh, what's your path here? My path? Um, I mean, long... you, you told me you played rugby back in college in the early <laughs> yeah, days. So yeah, how do you get from <laughs> rugby, which is a, a not a, a pretty conflict sport? Yeah, it has a, it has a conflict. <laughs> it's a, sport. Common, a Commonwealth thing. I think though, you lean into sure. conflict there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think there's two things. There's sort of the, the um, traditional uh, ways of thinking about this career kind of stuff, which I was an educator, um, worked with a lot of kids with behavioral and um, developmental issues and things like that. Uh, special ed programs. I, I really enjoyed it. In the summers, I, I did a couple of summers uh, in a wilderness therapy program. Again, like young people who are struggling to like meet the expectations, but also like really, really amazing young people. Um, and then and then I sort of like ran into this like restorative justice program in, in Burlington, Vermont. Um, so shout out to Burlington and the folks in, in Vermont who are doing this work really well um, in their community justice centers. And the, like, this will lead to this conversation about Seattle and our zero youth attention. Um, now, what, now, Vermont sounds like kind of a, a smaller state, smaller population, so maybe, maybe there's more community building there. I think there, I mean, yeah, but it doesn't mean that we can't build it here. Yeah. I, think that, I think that that's the, yes, it has worked there. Yes, it's worked in Canada with smaller populations, but it doesn't mean that we can't create systems and policies that like do the same things and replicate it on a bigger scale. So they had um, volunteers. I was just a volunteer. I got trained in restorative justice. And we had, so we had kids come to our meetings um, and there'd be like three adult panelists and then one young person. We talk about what happened. Um, they and they were either direct referral from police or uh, a kickback from the uh, prosecuting attorney. So a prosecutor would have the file, say, "Hey, this is not something I want to prosecute, but it is something I want to send to the community justice center." So they'd send us, um, and it was a lot of like low-level kids, stupid stuff, you know, like loitering and smoking uh, at the mall when you've been non-trespassed and like this one kid was like smoking weed in his car as he blew through a red light. And it's like, all right, do we want to ruin this kid's life with like a felony, like, you know, <laughs> like reckless driving? Like, yeah. of course not. Right. Um, and so like, what do we do with that? Some kids fighting at this, at the high school, um, which was, which was probably one of our most interesting cases, uh, kind of racially motivated stuff, but um, it was, it was super interesting. Um, and so you, yeah, how did that play out? Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like, there's this. Uh, I guess we're far enough away that I can share some of these details yeah, in yeah. time. You, you know, need the name uh, part, but the <laughs> these kids. Um, yeah, this one kid who was white, uh, basically like wanted to get this other kid in trouble, and so he started a fight. He was starting talking trash to him, like right in front of the school. Right, everybody's getting off the bus. It was this big thing. Everybody's getting off the bus, and he starts like sort of talking trash in front of this, um, in front of everybody else. And the vice principal's there. He's welcoming everybody in and sort of eggs him on, eggs him on, eggs him on. The black so kid's egging him on. Yeah, so okay. the black kid, like, punches him in the face, right? Like, boom, blows up. They kind of get into a tussle, but everybody's right there. So it got stopped really quickly. We get into this conference, and it was, it was like, it's profound to see a young person 
really reflect on why they were doing what they were doing. Not the black kid, but like, why was this white kid like? He had to take some accountability yeah, from ownership. Yeah, he was absolutely taking responsibility. In and, ways, and why was he doing it? <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Yeah. It's like oh, the why question can be so unsatisfying because yeah. this is a seventeen-year-old kid who's trying to figure out the world, and he's like, I don't know why. I wanted to get him in trouble, but I don't really like. Yeah, there's some. I mean, he wasn't able to get to the space, but yeah, like internalized racism, um, unconscious bias, like, and also I think that there's some some amount of like exploring the world, like what happens if, um, and in Vermont, obviously a very white community, and so here's a, a few black folks who like live in that community, and like, it's got to be like hard, and so anyway, so they they kind of go back and forth. The the answers that he gave gave were pretty un, unsatisfying. Ultimately, it's like I wanted to see what would happen. And then, like, upon reflection, he's, like, reflecting on the racial impact of this, um, the racialized impact of this. And they got to a place where they were, like, they weren't friends, I wouldn't say. But, like, they were really, like, in a good dialogue, right? And probably, so this is, yeah, like... probably a better, better place there than they would have been before. Yeah, because ultimately, like, if our traditional justice system had, like, intervened on that, this black kid would have got suspended... And the white kid probably wouldn't have had any, like, consequences. Maybe he would have got attention because he would, like, inst- like said some, like, inappropriate things at school. But, like, that's the, that's the nature of our, of our system, which is really sad that we can't sort of, like, parse out and take some accountability and take some space for, for this person who was kind of technically the victim for responsibility, to allow them to take some responsibility. Um, and that's certainly not the case, and I don't want that, like... I just did a week of training last week and we had a lot of dialogue on the use of the word victim and like, is that appropriate? Like, are teachers ever the victim? And it, I don't know, I mean like sometimes maybe, but victim's a really, really hard word. And I know folks who work in domestic violence have pushed hard to not use that word. And I, and I totally understand. I think our so language lacks word, a like, little bit. Yeah, how do you how do you frame it in a right. non-victim way? Right, 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 right. But also like really recognize that there's been some impact to one person more than to the other person. And and so yeah, the same. Like, this story about these two kids at the at Burlington High School is <clears throat> sort of exemplified in a lot of like experiences of bullying and harassment, right? Like this kid who's been picked on for a long time will lash out and like punch this other kid in the face, and like then this kid who's been the victim of bullying for five weeks or whatever is going gonna get suspended instead of like pausing, slowing down, saying, "All right, what what actually did happen here? Is there some responsibility? Is there some?" conditions that we as administration and schools have missed to create this and so you kind of extrapolate that also to community right so theft and and, um like property crime and and drug dealing and stuff like that in communities of color like well let's stop let's slow down let's look at like what are the conditions that created this in the first place and not to say that folks who like commit property crime are, are um not at fault for anything that they've done but like we yeah there's certainly some responsibility that we as a community need to make and create opportunities for young people i think especially young people um to to kind of figure out opportunities for themselves and not just be labeled as a criminal um, when the totality of the circumstances isn't really kind of being voiced or looked at in in any meaningful way you know so kind of like that saying you know it takes a village to you know raise or whatever Mm -hmm. so in this case it sounds like it's very labor intensive like a lot of people have to come together really look at this whole situation so so how how scalable is that like if you have a lot of people addressing an issue on an individual level that's super cool but like when you have (laughs) when you have a lot of people acting up 
and then it just becomes overwhelming. Yeah, I can't. I mean, sometimes it does feel overwhelming. Um, uh, you know, where should it all start? To start in the family, where, where does the community get involved? I think I, I always say like, start where you want to start. Yeah. I think the relational approach to conflict, you've got to start where the conflict's at. Like whatever's present for you, um, is where you start. So for, for schools, I would say like you got to start in what two two spots, right? One is you have to start intentionally building relationship really intentionally building relationship, talking to every kid, having every young person speak to another young person. I think that we miss that. I think we, we think that like kids know each other or kids are going to do that automatically or whatever, but the, the, they have to practice. And you, you as a teacher or uh, you know, administrator or whatever, like school leaders have to be there kind of leading the charge on relationship building. So that, and then pick the conflict that's most present for you. Like whether it's drugs and alcohol, whether it's, um, bullying and harassment, whether it's online stuff, whether it's something else, like figure out where the most pressing issues are and then start dealing with that. Um, and, and there are systems. And I think that one thing that we've done well um, is create systems. You know, I, I just mentioned the sort of the, the victim offender conference or their sort of conference, which is labor intensive. There's lots of other ways to do conferencing that kind of get at the issues. Um, I don't need 15 people around every conflict, especially conflicts that are like, these two kids got in a shouting match in the hallway. I don't need 15 people around that, right? Yeah, you don't need a whole group therapy no. session. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, but I do need people who have been impacted by similar things to sit in those spaces and say like, hey, like, I think that young people are the best advocates for other young people, like kind of behaving, quote unquote, right? Like when I say, hey, Johnny, your actions have impact. I got to stop using Johnny. I hate that. Hey, Nicholas, <laughs> that's my name, yeah. Nicholas. <laughs> your actions have impact on the people. When adults say that to me as a kid, like, I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah, sort of, sort of. But when there's another young person who's there and said like, hey, Nicholas, like your actions have impact. Like, well, this is what we do here. Sort of the pro-social, the sort of mission focused um, response. Like that stuff changes the game. I've sit, sat in many circles where young people are calling out other young people for the impact that they've had in really positive ways. And I think that that's what we miss when we do a punitive system is calling kids out in a negative way, right? But you're saying like, hey, I want you to be successful. I want you to be here. You're important here. And this stuff isn't okay. Like the language that you're using, the showing up to class late, the not engaging in school, the drugs, whatever it is, right? The fighting, um, that's not okay. And that's not your best self. I want you to, as another young person, saying to a young person, I, I want you to be better. Like that's a very different feel than adults saying that to, to them. Very cool. Yeah. So, so what's next for you? Okay. Sounds like you want to scale. Somewhat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, like we're growing. Um, kind of, we want to partner with organizations and folks are doing really interesting work across the country um, because we think we we've done some really interesting things to scale some stuff and to kind of create systems that kind of. Um, so it sounds like Vermont has something. Oregon has something. What other states are kind of leading the charge? You know, there's a lot of different states that are doing really interesting stuff. I mean, Texas of all places, like I see so much stuff out of Texas. It's no crazy. Kidding. Yeah. Um, I think the big places are certainly the Bay Area, Oakland, San Francisco Unified School District, Oakland Unified School District. Um, Sonoma County is doing some really interesting work. And so you see this, this actually there's a bunch of overlap between schools, health departments in counties, and then the, the, the justice system and kind of where that's happening. So. so since you're the National Center, do you want to be the kind of repository for best practices or what's your, what's your goal? Um, that's a hard thing to say. There's a lot of folks who are um, protective of their, of their restorative practices. I think I what I want to- I imagine there's all sorts of different 
models. Yeah, yeah. I want to push folks to be reflective on their practice. That's what our job is. Um, we have a set of tools and practices that work for us. Um, and so if, maybe restorative justice for restorative justice for people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, that might be the, the sort of the thinking is, yeah. is uh, how, do, how can we help folks be more reflective on their own um, on their own practices and, and see if it is aligned with the values um, that they hold. Um, because one of the one of the first questions that I got wrong as a as a practitioner was um, with a principal and some teacher leaders that were like, hey, what do we do when staff aren't on board? And I was like, well, you know, I looked at a principal who's a, a friend of mine now, Brad Brown, and he was like, uh, I, I was like, oh, he needs to get them out of the building. And then one of the teachers, one of the teacher leaders, was like, well, what would be the restorative approach to that? I was yeah. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry. sorry. Give him a pip. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Um, but it is really engaging in the conflict with colleagues. Um, that's the hardest work for for teachers. So yeah. Awesome. So you want to give a plug to your organization for the listeners? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Look, look for us at the National Center for RestorativeJustice.com. Um, we've got courses that are available for folks. We've got some online coaching for folks across the country. Um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I think that's it. Okay. Oh, also on Twitter, at NC4RJ. Get all uh, your uh, social media handles <laughs> in. <laughs> exactly. We're mostly on Twitter, but yeah. Is Twitter a good spot for you guys? Yeah, Twitter's a great spot if you want to shout out us, um, tag us and stuff, or send us articles, and we would love to repost. We um, really try to stay active on Twitter and share some really interesting things, both in the educational setting, kind of the relationship stuff um, from the Gottman Institute, and also um, from from the criminal justice system. There's a lot of really great folks doing this work that are pushing um, a new way of thinking about what justice means, both in schools and in the, in the criminal justice system and then in, in families and communities. So when, when, we, when I connected with you first was around the zero youth detention. Um, initiative here in Seattle. So the Euro, Zero Youth Detention Initiative, um, which is like really getting off the ground maybe in the last six months, um, due to the building of the new youth jail, uh, kind of put a lot of pressure on Dow Constantine to to really rethink what his policy was on juvenile, uh, juvenile justice. And, and so, um, God, what is his name? Cannot remember his name. Um, the the leader of the the initiative. So this is what I'm, I'm I think is that I think is an incredibly important initiative um, for King County. I think we need to invest heavily in um, creating systems that really shift how we think about engaging in, in young, with young people around harm. I think one of the challenges that I find in the work that we're doing now in the city or in the county is that we are focusing on um, young people and missing victims and community, young people who are authors of harm, right? I think we need to participate. We really, really need to get victims participating in the systems, and we need to get community participating in the systems because we cannot pretend that young people haven't caused harm in our community, right? There's lots of like assault and um, property crime and stuff like that that like happens, and I'm not trying to put anybody in jail, like especially kids. But we have to have systems that really engage in this dialogue between folks who cause some harm and the community. Uh, and so I think that we have to be really careful as we build systems to move this forward. Um, and, and I think that that's what I want to, to make sure we're, we're doing is not just sort of 
diverting young people into a program that's like a mentoring program, which I think is super important. And at the same time, if victims aren't present in those conversations around what the system, what the outcomes are of that, then, then we're missing a big opportunity. Um, yeah. All right, Nicholas Bradford with the National Center for Restorative Justice. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. It's your time. <laughs>